You are listening to the Bridge Community Church Podcast out of Warrington, Virginia. Our church exists to connect you to God, others, and the marketplace. For more information, you can visit us online at bridge4life.com. Thank you for listening, and we hope you are blessed by today's message. Hey, it is good to see everybody. I'm so glad that the cold did not keep you away. I thank God for his umbrella of protection that made snow turn into rain. And I pray for those in the Midwest as they continue to dig out. I have friends in the Midwest, and I have said, I thank God for his protection. And they said, so you're saying God didn't protect us? And I said, that's your problem, not mine. <laughs> so anyway, uh, what a continue on today in the series, Luke, Settled Truth for Unsettled Times. And one of the things that I'm doing is going through the book of Luke, and we're addressing various stories. Some of them are very unique to the gospel of Luke. In other words, the other three gospel writers didn't, or didn't include some of these stories. And one of those is today. We're going to look at this. So would everybody stand for the reading of the word? And we're going to go to Luke chapter 2, verses 41 through 52. I know when we read this, you're going to be thinking, how in the world is Pastor Greg going to get a sermon out of this? And how many know if you'll hang in there, I'll show you. We'll get something out of it. So let's begin to read. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. When he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. After the festival was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. Thinking he was in their company, they traveled on for a day. Then they began looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they did not find him, they went back to Jerusalem to look for him. After three days, they found him in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. Everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. The Holy Spirit, as we look at the word today, I pray that it helps us to not only grow and expand our mind and understanding, but I pray that it influences our values, our beliefs, and our expressions. I pray, God, for insight for each person, regardless of where they are in life, what they're facing, what they're going through. I pray the Holy Spirit speaks to them a word of encouragement and help in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. 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 The Lord bless you and be seated. So one of the things that we're looking at in this series, I utilize a tool, and I call it more of an analytical approach, and today is not going to be any different. I generally do that, but one of the things about this particular book of the Bible is, is I'm leaning into that a little bit more, and I want to kind of lay the foundation for something regarding that is, is that the United States now is the most educated civilization that has ever walked planet Earth. Why is that important? 
Because now we have people who are able to sort and ask questions and make inquiries, and they're not being critical, they're not uh, uh, trying to disprove the gospel, but very sincere, very uh, learned people, and they have serious questions about the Bible because one of the things that we recognize is this, the challenge comes usually now at the Bible's accuracy, its authority, uh, its uh, inspiration, and we're seeing as pastors that we have to incorporate a little more academics into the understanding of why we say those things, but also not forget that we also need a demonstration of the Holy Spirit. Learning about God is not strictly a brain activity. It's important, but it's also an experiential thing. We just don't talk about who God is. We say you can experience God. Now, the reason I bring all this up is for this particular reason, because one of the challenges about the Bible that we have today from sincere inquiries about who Christ is, is the fact that there seems to be a lot of differences in the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And some people will point to certain stories, why did he say it this way, but this is not what this one over here says. And you start lining up the Gospels and it starts, you know, you're kind of like, wow, so what about... What about these different views by these different writers? And so let me just say, I, I, get, the, I get this question a lot, okay? And I, I've never had it come from somebody who was like, I've got you now. They're just like, I, sincerely, I've laid out the four Gospels, I lay them side by side, and I'm having a hard time understanding why they express the stories so differently. And so, I, I, so here, let me give you an illustration this morning that might help you understand some of you are going great I never thought of that question pastor but now you got my brain twisting right now okay so hang on a second so let me give you an illustration let's say a military person a soldier a doctor and a mom of three children they are called to testify in a court of law because they all have witnessed a robbery that involved the shooting okay now one I think many of you know that they're they're gonna get their their stories and here's how the mom might tell you the story. I was there with my three children, then I saw this individual pull the gun, shoot somebody. I was terrified. My children were terrified. There was blood all over the place. I grabbed my children, and I went to hide. I was trying to protect them. And this, this, guy, this guy was just crazy. He's just, he's crazy. He's crazy. You go to the doctor, he would say this. This might be his story. Yeah, he, he pulled the gun. I saw him shoot somebody. But somebody else immediately took action and neutralized and was able to uh, uh, take care of that individual so another shooting, would, the shooting would not continue. And as a doctor, I know the mom and her three children went and hid, and they should have. But as a doctor, I felt compelled to immediately run to those who had been injured and shot and to be give aid. And I didn't see any more blood than I hadn't seen in the emergency room. But it was still serious. But that's why I did what I The military person might use a language like this. There was a target who pulled a gun. And being of the military nature, I felt it was my uh, obligation. Seeing the mother and her three children hiding, I knew the guy was a doctor. I wasn't sure what his skill level at neutralizing the target was, so I immediately went after the target, and when he was neutralized, everybody was happy. <laughs> the officer who writes the report would write the perp or the suspect. Do you, do you see how everybody's employing different language to describe the same event? And they'll go to a court of law and they'll give their testimony. No one is going to say, why does everybody have a different 
language in describing the shooting. Maybe it didn't actually have. We would all understand that people are speaking from their experience of who they are as a person in the context they were in. Everybody understand it? And we would say it's the combination thereof that we can get a great picture of what happened. There was a woman with three children who was scared for her life and her kids, and she was hiding the best of her or she could. A doctor saw an opportunity to use a skill and help people who, be, who were shot. And the military person said, I saw an ability to take action against the person who was committing the crime. And while everything was, I took action myself. So you have to understand, we have four gospel accounts. We have a tax collector who used to be a priest and backslid. We have his version. We have Mark, who was a disciple of Peter. Mark didn't have the best education. He was kind of a, a rough writer, but he, he was able to write and, and capture his story of what he felt. You have Luke, who was a doctor. And then you have John, was not just a disciple going to the Gospels. John was Jesus' best friend. Now, they're all going to employ different language to express what they saw, felt, and experienced. And so I would actually tell you this. What would happen if those three individuals in that court scene that I described walked in and they said word for word the same thing? You would go, these witnesses have been coached. This is a setup. Something's off because why do they all need to memorize the same script? Right? I would tell you this, when people say, why is there such diversity in the stories of talking about Jesus? I say, you're actually confirming the fact that they spoke from who they were. Because if they all had exactly the same phrases and the same language, we would all be saying today, looks like to me they were coached and they were copying. You might even question whether they were there. They were just copying somebody else's story. It's the fact that they employ different language that tells us so that, listen to me, the diversity tells us it's legit. See, people want to say the diversity is maybe an excuse to dismiss it. And I go, no, 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 no. If they were all word for word the same, we would dismiss it because we'd say they just did nothing. But they got coached and they copied the language. No. They were all talking from who they were, describing an experience just like these three people who witnessed a crime and saw somebody shot. They were just employing the language of who they were, and God used them. So from that, we can learn a lot. So today, we're actually looking at a story that neither Matthew, Mark, or John did not put in their gospel. And so you come to Luke, and you're kind of, what was it about this story that compelled Luke to record it? Now, there's one thing about this story that I'm sure everybody is wondering, and I'm just going to, before I get into the message, I'm going to answer it really quick because I know it's gnawing at people. How do Joseph and Mary lose the Son of God? <laughs> I mean, come on. I mean, it's not like you got to, you know, I mean, you know, it's not like he's just another kid. I mean, he's God's son. How do you tell God we lost your kid? You trusted us. You, and, and by the way, you know, it was three days. He was absent because they traveled the whole day. And then at night, they discovered he wasn't there. Then they had to travel back another day, which got him back to the city at night, which means they had to look for him on the third day. So you're thinking, how, how can that happen? So let me give you a little description. Jesus, well, when they traveled to these kinds of things, they would go as groups or clans and large families. And the women and children would walk in the front and the men would be behind they would walk in a group, okay? So Jesus being a child, he would have been with his mother. 
But at age 12 and 13, he would be allowed to transition from the mother and children group, and he qualified now to start walking with the men. So at age 12, he had an option of going in either group. It's whatever Jesus wanted to do. So when they left the city, it would have been natural for Mary to go, oh, okay, well, you know, he wants, big boy now, he's 12, he wants to walk with the guys. He's back here with his dad. It was natural for Joseph to think just the opposite. I understand he's been walking with Mary, you know, his mother for 12 years, and okay, so he, he wants to walk with his mother today. Okay, that's fine, you know, I'm good with that. So when they set up camp that night, that's when they realized, what, you don't have, well, I thought he was with you. I thought he wanted to walk with you, you, Mary. I thought he wanted to go with the men, and he was with you, Joseph. Well, I don't have him. Well, I don't have him. You see how it all got messed up and why they had to head back to this? So Joseph and Mary don't appear to be as irresponsible in that, in that scenario. And the second thing is, Jesus was entering. Manhood was, uh, was a, where you started to be accountable to the law. And you could now sit in the teachings of when, where men were taught. It was, it was at age 12, and they had their bar mitzvah, their ceremony at age 13. So Jesus is in that transit. So it wasn't out of character. He wasn't being disobedient. He was starting to assume the freedoms that came with his age. It's just that when the parents aren't informed, how many parents have ever said, where have you been the last four hours? You know, you didn't tell me where you were going. You didn't tell me you were going to be home. And you're like, I'm all good. I know that, but I needed to know that in advance so that I knew that you were all good. Okay? So let's begin to delve into the story and what does that mean to us? Okay? Number one, everybody read this out loud. Obedience in the simple things sets the stage for greater things. It says every year Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the festival of the Passover. If you read the next two verses... It, it uses the word festival. It keeps using it repeatedly. Three times a year, the men were to appear in Jerusalem at the temple. And this is one of those scenarios. And so the other part of it was you were to be there. Eight, this one was eight days. But you had people who say, ah, I'm not going this year. Second thing you had was, I don't think eight days is really necessary. Let's just go a couple days late. And then we'll leave a couple days early. You know, let's, let's just beat the crowd. And, you know, eight days, I can't be away from the business. I can't be away from my fields for eight days like that, including travel. So, so but what you find here is this. Jesus' parents were faithful in honoring the things that God had asked the Israelites to do. Now, when I say the simple things set the stage for greater things, it's this. Oftentimes, our mindset is this. God wants me to do that. And we always follow it up with, why? We always want to say, well, if I have to do this, then I want to know what is on the other side of doing that. Why does God want me to do this? I'm going to give you a revelation that might just help you with some of the commands of God. Some of the commands of God have nothing to do with what's on the other side. It's just the fact that God is instilling obedience so that we'll trust him in the things when they really matter. Some of you are in the military, you understand that. You go to a thing called boot camp, and they have you, and they tell you to do some of the most ridiculous things in the world. Can I get a witness? And you just kind of go, why? And it has nothing to do with the outcome of what you're actually doing. The drill sergeant just sees an opportunity for you to learn obedience. Just do it because I outrank you. Do it. 
And if you can instill that kind of obedience on such simplistic things that don't matter, that have no long-term consequence, if you just learn obedience, they know that when a serious decision is on the line and they ask you to do it, you'll do it. Why? Because they've asked you to obey in insignificant in things, and you did it. Can I tell you, sometimes God, we're always wheeling and dealing with God. What's in it for me? What's in it for me? And God's like, you know, some of the things that I just tell you to do, you, I'm just trying to instill obedience to you. So that when the significant things come along, that you'll do it. Yeah, there's going to be benefit. But you, if you don't learn obedience, you'll never make the right calls in the big decisions. Obedience in the simple things set the stage for greater. Some of you are parents. You've explained why you want something. I want you to cut the grass this angle and this way. And your son or daughter says, well, why do I have to do this angle? Why can't I go this angle? Why can't, you know, you say, I want the trash out before. And you think, oh, well, why does that trash be out? And finally, you utter the words that you swore you would never say in your life, you know, because, and you go, because I said so. How many parents have used that verbiage before? You, you know, you explain and you do it and then they, because I said so, do it. And then you go in the other room and, ah, I've just turned into my parents. <laughs> but actually, that's a good thing. Because one of the things that that does is that obedience is built on trust. Okay? It's built on trust. And a lot of times God says, just do it. Well, I, well, I don't feel like it. Why do I have to do that, God? Because, and God literally feels, because I'm God and you're not. Just do it. Learn the discipline of obedience. He knows what, God knows what he's talking about. I'm not going to, listen, I'm not always going to get everything, but I trust him. Everybody said amen. amen. Number two, read this out loud. Spiritual development is a, it's a lifelong journey. So we see at this particular stage of Jesus' life, it said when he was 12 years old, they went up to the festival according to the custom. And what I want you to recognize is this. Jesus' journey to spiritual development has been his whole life. We read he, his development started when he was born. And sometimes God's activity is more evident than at other times, but we need to recognize what Jesus said. The Father is always at work. And so we know that he was working when he was 12. We, we pick his story up, and I'll be getting to this later, at age 30 when he began his ministry as we define it, okay? So we see that he began at age 30. And all through this, God's activity is working at every stage of our life. So we have to recognize as we are living life that spiritual development is not a destination. I have arrived. No. Every year, every, there's various dimensions of God's activity associated with whatever your age may be. God is continually growing you and developing and shaping you. And even at age 12, God's activity was working in Jesus. We're going to get into this a little bit more because you start to see that Jesus starts to discover who his identity is, which is number three. Read it out loud. Understanding our spiritual identity is critical to spiritual development. Now, this is a part of the story where people kind of sometimes scratch their head and go, 
Was Jesus like going a little passive aggressive here when he said what he said to Mary and Joseph? So let me help you. It says, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, son, why have you treated us like this? Your father and I have been anxiously searching for you. Why were you searching for me, he asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? Does everybody see the word father is capitalized? This is one of those indications through the scripture. It could have happened sooner, but this is the first recorded instant of when Jesus starts to figure out who he is. He starts to realize, see, they've been coming every year to this temple, okay? And if they've been devout Jews, they've been coming three times a year. But we know for at least, they've been coming every year for at least this one and possibly three. And all of a sudden, Jesus goes, this just isn't a place that we come because God asked us to do this. This is my dad's house. This, this is where my dad lives. Jesus was saying, I'm home. And he was telling Mary and Joseph. See, Mary and Joseph knew that. Remember? I mean, they both had angelic visits, right? So they knew who they had. But Jesus now absorbs it and says, I know who I am. And I know whose place this is. And I know that this is my dad's house. Why wouldn't I want to be here? Because I've just been visiting. But now, this is... This is where I belong. And so one of the things that we sometimes see in life is this. It's absolutely critical for us to know our identity. That's why people, through various experiences, sometimes explore where they come from and who they were. Some people do the DNA thing, the 23Me, all the other groups that do that, and you're interested in where you come from and you know what's the bloodline and who you're associated. Why? Because we, we want to know what was the momentum that preceded me, that caused me to be where I was at with who I was when I was born? What was, what was life's momentum that put me in the position of being born to these two parents in that location, in that spot? And sometimes we derive information that changes how we see ourselves, that encourages us. And sometimes we may find things we go, oh, okay, well, all right. I mean, our, I, don't, I don't know the specifics about my family. Or my wife's family. We, by the way, we come. We did a DNA thing. I've told you this, but we come. We did the DNA thing, and we both came not only from Ireland. We came from the same region. I said, "Dear God, are we distant cousins?" You know, I did that whole thing. Real simple story. There was a thing called the potato famine in Ireland, and my ancestors heard there was. There was land and opportunity, so they jumped in a boat. When they landed in New York, they decided that was not a good place to be. So they went out toward the west and got some land in Arkansas. And they have stayed there ever since until my dad left the farm. Okay? Okay? But it's, it's, a, good, it's a good story. We all want to know, how do we get here? What did we do? And so here's the thing. Sometimes people get into a self-destructive mode. They go, well, yeah, if you saw what my history was, you'd hang your head, too. You, you, you wouldn't be telling anybody about, my, you, wouldn't, you wouldn't tell people what my history is. It's nothing to brag about. And I say that's the beauty if you'll study the scripture of what God says you are. 
because God's in the redemptive business. And I'm going to give you a couple slides here, so if you want to take a quick photo real quickly, it's amazing the picture the Bible says of who we are. And no matter what you've been through in life, no matter what your heritage, no matter your history, how bad it is, or you say, I just don't even want to talk about it. Let me tell you who God says you are. He says, first of all, I am a friend of God. That's what he says in John 15. In Psalm 139, he says, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. In Psalm 17, he says, I'm the apple of God's eye. In Deuteronomy 28, he says, I'm the head and I'm not the tail. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he says, I belong to a chosen people. In 1 Peter 2 as well, he says, I belong to the royal priesthood. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, he says, I have the mind of Christ. In 1 John chapter 4, he says, greater is he that is in me than he is in the world. In Isaiah 54, he says, no weapon formed against me will prevail. In Philippians 4, he says, I can do all this through him who gives me strength. In Isaiah 40, he says, my hope in the Lord renews my strength. I soar on wings like eagles. I run and I don't get weary. I walk and I don't faint. In Psalm 46, he says, I am, I am still calm. That's what that word means. Because I know that God has a plan for my life. In Jeremiah 29, it says, I know the Lord has plans to prosper me and not to harm me, plans to give me hope and a future. That doesn't mean I don't live in a world that's fighting to cancel that. But it just tells me what God's intent is for my life. In Romans 8, it says, I, can, I know nothing can separate me from the love of God. In, in, in uh, Psalm 103, it says, I'm redeemed from the pit. See, some of you need to stop visiting the pit. There's no identity in the pit. There's no reason to go back and, and revisit that place. You need to understand, you are redeemed from the pit, and he's crowned you with love and compassion. Zephaniah chapter 3 says, he's rejoicing over me with singing. Can you get a mental image of that? God singing over you. We get this idea that God's sitting on the throne, and he's just... He's got a lightning bolt in one arm. Mess up. Come on, I dare you. I dare you. No, God, God is singing over you. And then in Romans 8, it says, Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father interceding for me. So I got Jesus interceding at the right hand of the Father for me, and I've got God singing over me. I'm telling you what, some of you, you ought to put that on a piece of paper and put that on your wall. When you get up in the morning, get out of your, your depression, your darkness, and all that kind of stuff, and remind yourself, I'm, I, I know your past may be dark, but according to that scripture, your future looks really bright. And you need to remind yourself that you are no longer in the pit. And because of that, you have a new identity. And I would say this, new identities. Many. That one, you're the apple of God's eye. Wow. God stares at you because he says, I like you. I, re I remember when I first saw my wife. I kept staring at her. So she told her sisters, who's the creep? 
I liked what I saw. I made it a point to be in the vicinity whenever I could. That's what happens when, you're the, when someone is the apple of your eye. You're, you don't see if they're looking for you. You're looking for them. God says, you're the apple of my eye. Where are, oh, there you are. He's not watching you to see if you trip up. He's watching you because he says, I love you. I love you. So understanding our spiritual identity is critical to our development. Number four is this. Read it out loud. God doesn't need us to disobey to help him fulfill his purposes in our lives. Jesus has just said, I just found my real dad, and I'm at his house. And by the way, he's age 12. He's at that age where he can start calling a few shots in his life, and he would not be classified as rebellious. Then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. Isn't that interesting? Sometimes people think God's purposes and plans aren't playing out as well. And the enemy loves to plant in our mind. mind. Looks like God's struggling with his plan for your life. You might want to just help him out a little bit. Isn't that what Satan did in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve? You need to help God out. This just doesn't look like everything that God intended. Let me tell you, God doesn't need you to disobey to help him out. In fact, I will say this. If it's not happening, you're either in the wrong timing or God just doesn't want it to happen. But don't think, well, I'm, I'm just going to give this a little, I'm going to step across the line. Don't do it. It'll throw the timing of what God has for your life off. It'll cause a compromise. Jesus was told to come home with his mom and, with his, mom and his earthly father. And what did he do? He went back to Nazareth and he was obedient. If there's anybody who could say, I don't think you guys get, I'm on a mission from God. Literally. And you want, you want me to go back and work in a carpenter shop? Do you know what I've come to do? I don't see how carpentry fits in the plan. Jesus did not disobey to supposedly help out God's plan. And if Jesus toes the line in obedience like that, how much more do you and I need to do that? Amen? Number five. Read it out loud. Obedience Obedience does not make us immune to personal setbacks. So, we read here, and Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. There is now 18 years of silence until he turns 30 and he shows up at John the Baptist getting baptized. There's now 18 years of silence. So there's nothing clear in what the scripture says about what was he doing for 18 years. So let me say this. If you'll pay attention to some of the scriptures, there's a whole lot of options that could have happened. But if you pay attention to some of the things that were said in Scripture, you can come up with a pretty strong case of what likely happened. I am not going to stand and tell you that this is 100%. 
But I'm going to tell you that it fulfills all the things that Scripture says and does not violate anything in the Scripture. And so it makes a good case. Okay? So I'm going to share this with you. Did everybody here say, I did not say this was 100% true? Okay. So how many understand detective work that if A plus B equals C, you know, you, you start putting things together? So there's, there's two really good story, two options. Where did Joseph go? Because Joseph disappears from the scene at the same time. We never hear of Joseph ever again in the storyline. There's two things that most likely happened to Joseph. Number one, he could have divorced Mary and left. Number two, Joseph could have died. Okay? Now, let me tell you why we think Joseph most likely died. We read during Jesus' ministry, his critics were not afraid to take anything in his background and throw it at him to use it to discredit him and his heritage. A few times, those teachers of the law, when they came at uh, Jesus, they said, "Can any? Isn't this Joseph the carpenter's son?" Now, that was not said in a complimentary fashion. They were saying, "This guy is a blue-collar trade guy. How does that type of person become a spiritual authority? He's been working carpentry, and now he's an expert on the law." And then they say this other statement. Can anything good come out of Galilee? Y'all with me? So it shows you they were not afraid to use anything around Jesus' life that they could throw it at him to discredit. If Joseph would have divorced Mary, that would have been a strong card for them to play when she was present with Jesus it would have also been a card that they would have played in relationship to, well, where you came from, even your own dad has ratted you out and left. Y'all with me? They, they would have gladly discredited his mother, but you know what you find? They always honored her when she was in the vicinity. They left her alone. They never said anything disparaging about Mary. Even when Jesus was being crucified, they hurled insults at Jesus, but they did not hurl insults at Mary. She was present. Y'all with me? All right, can you start to see the picture? So we're pretty confident that Joseph died. It was the only way that would make all these parts work. So that would mean Jesus being the oldest would have been responsible to raise his brothers and sisters until they came of age. Jesus was in charge of the carpentry shop. It would explain why he had to wait till age 30. Isn't it ironic? The Son of God had family obligations. And in spite of everything that he wanted to do for God, one of the greatest calls he had at that window of time was, take care of my mother and take care of my brothers and sisters. Now I can play this out further. Remember when Jesus was on the cross? His mother's there. He said to John, his best friend, Mother, behold your son meaning John, John, behold your mother. Even while Jesus was on the cross, he was very conscious of taking care of his mother. There's no way that he would have abandoned her during these 18 years. It was very, she was very important to him. The other thing is this, because Jesus carried on and took care of his family, when the church was formed after Jesus' resurrection, there was, a young, there was a man that was put in charge 
of the New Testament church so that the apostles could go out and evangelize. And his name was James. It was not James the apostle. It was James the half-brother of Jesus. Kind of makes you want to make you wonder, what could have possibly happened that convinced his stepbrother that Jesus was the Son of God? Because there's not any more harder critic than a stepbrother. Or I should say a half-brother. And by the way, that half-brother wrote the book of James. Isn't that ironic? We have the book of James, and it was actually written by Jesus' half-brother. Hmm. So I say all that for this particular reason. Even the Son of God was not exempt from the hardships of life. All this power, all this authority, and it looks like his family was thrown into a crisis, and instead of getting to use his miraculous power to solve the crisis, God had Jesus live through it and take care of his family. It's the only reason you can come up with why did he go silent for 18 years and he was working in a carpentry shop. Obedience doesn't make us immune to personal setbacks. The Bible tells us it rains on the just and the unjust. Even the Son of God had rain on his most, what would have been deemed his most important years. And he has to hold off while he takes care of home business. Can I just tell you this? Your first primary responsibility is the ministry of your own house. I thought I'd get a better amen than that. We, listen, and in Jesus' case, he would have been the, the authority figure in the family being the oldest son. Parents take the hits so their kids don't. That's what adulthood is. We sacrifice so that they can have a life unimpugned, unimpeded by some of the things that the world tries to throw up. We stand in the gap because nobody else will do it for us. So we do it. Welcome to parenting. That was really weak parents which takes me to the last point because it would make sense in this last point because suddenly Luke ends with Jesus growing at age 12 and all of a sudden here he is and he starts with the baptism of, of, of John the Baptist and what I want you to see so let me just read this when we walk in obedience personal setbacks become launch pads for God's activity so the story that I just shared seems to be the best indication of what happened. Everybody caught that? I said the best indication. Because then it even makes this verse of why he would go from age 12 and then suddenly he's talking about John the Baptist, the way he's talking. John the Baptist, by the way, was his second cousin. And suddenly he shows up and John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, I've got cousins, and I can guarantee you, ain't none of them going to say that about me. <laughs> and you have cousins, and they told me they would never say that about you either. And you, again, you come to what could have happened that John the Baptist said, you're the son of God, aren't you, Jesus? I mean, it just what, what was that? We don't know. 
But it was so defining that when Jesus shows up, when John the Baptist is ministering, that's how he introduces Jesus. He doesn't say, hey, 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 hold on, there's my second cousin. I haven't seen him in a long time. What does John the Baptist do? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Okay, how did he know that? But I want you to catch something. Remember I said we, we think Joseph's father died. And now he has spent 18 years taking care of his family. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven opened and, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. We all focus there and we miss what's being said in this next part. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. Jesus hasn't heard those words in 18 years. put his ministry on hold to take care of family. You see, when it says, with you I am well pleased, that can't refer to ministry because he hasn't done any ministry yet. Right? So I said, you got to get the detective eyes. The only thing he's done is take care of family. And what does his dad say? I am well pleased. Way to go. And he hears, listen to me, he gave Jesus what every man, every, every son wants to hear from their dad. You're my son. I love you. And I'm proud of you. I don't care how old you get. Every man wants to hear that from his dad. Jesus hasn't heard that since Joseph's passing. For all practical purposes, living in obscurity in Nazareth, working a carpenter's shop, taking care of the family. And now, listen to this. I love the fact, because it says everyone heard this, God said it. So God didn't whisper it in Jesus' ear. He announced it. You're my son. I love you. And I'm pleased with what you've done with your life. When we walk in obedience, personal setbacks become God's launch pads for his activity. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. God's, you did so good at home, I'm going to let you do it everywhere. Get out there. Start telling them. Start doing it. Start ministering. Start. By the way, it would help you to understand why, Kat, why Jesus had compassion when Jairus' daughter died. There's a lot of people dying. Why did he care about Jairus' daughter? Because it, it hit home. You start to see some personal identity of what Jesus had possibly gone through in his life, and you start to see it in other people. That's why he loved to feed the 5,000. Because he probably, they probably had some lean times in their household. He understood what that was like. And he goes, I don't want these people going hungry. I'll feed them. You start to see the, the lenses of what Jesus went through. You start to say, that's why he was doing what he was doing. God uses all of our junk for his glory somehow, some way. I don't understand how he does it, but I can tell you this. There is nothing that is happening in your life that is wasted to God. He will redeem it and he will use it 
and he will bless you, and he will bless other people. And everybody said amen. Come on, let's stand to our feet as we wrap up the service with communion. Would you just take a moment and lift your hands? I want you to praise him for being the God who knows you and has given you an identity apart from your physical heritage and all that. God gives you a spiritual identity. Come on, lift your voices now. Thank you, Lord.